Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning. Good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 47. It's week two of Women in History Month, and we continue the celebration by bringing you two more fantastic fables from female authors. First up is a wonderful little piece of flash fantasy titled Dream Logic by Barbara A. Barnett. Ms. Barnett is a writer, musician, librarian, odyssey-writing workshop alum, coffee addict, wine lover, bad movie mocker, and all-round geek. Her short fiction has appeared in publications such as Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Intergalactic Medicine Show, Shimmer, Daily Science Fiction, Flash Fiction Online, Fantasy Magazine, Black Static, and Wild Stories 2011, the year's best gay speculative fiction. Barbara lives with her husband in southern New Jersey and has been known to frequently burst into song. You can find her online at babarnett.com or babbling as a member of the Stardusted Sirens writing group at stardustedsirens.wordpress.com. Narrating Dream Logic is Gareth Stack. Gareth is a writer and performer who creates comedy series and documentaries for Irish radio. He has been published in Analog Music magazine, This Is Not Where I Belong, In Transit, Piranha magazine, Explore magazine, Blue Ireland and Albedo One. You can find him on the web at garethstack.com and on Twitter at garethstack. So put on your boxing gloves and get ready to step into the ring for a round of Dream Logic by Barbara A. Barnett. Keith touches a hand to his nose, and I'm not sure what surprises him more, the blood my left hook drew, or the fact that his boxing gloves have suddenly disappeared. How did you? I slug Keith again, 
Keith doesn't get dream logic, which is why he shouldn't be narco-boxing, but it's the latest fad, so he just had to get on board with it. A badge of cool to add to his generically perfect looks and the girlfriend he cheats on and that big fat promotion because he's got leadership potential while I'm just bossy and shrill. Only narco-boxing is my thing, not his jab-jab one-two combo. A twig of a girl like me shouldn't be able to take a guy Keith's size. But that's how dream logic works. Suddenly the boxing ring becomes your grandmother's living room and instead of gloves you're decking someone with a loaf of bread while that weird freckled kid from the sixth grade is cheering you on from the sidelines even though you can't remember his name. Keith takes a swing but misses my face because suddenly I'm about a foot taller. His glove, because his mitts are back on now, bounces off my chest the way those two kids are bouncing on that trampoline in the corner where the ref was standing a second ago. Billy Brown. That was the freckled kid's name. He's standing next to the trampoline, looking exactly like he did in the sixth grade, hair sticking straight up and his striped shirt hanging half untucked from his pants. The kind of kid Keith probably once shoved in lockers. Keith takes another swing at me. I duck and suddenly we're in this huge freight elevator, only it's raining and there's Billy Brown again, holding an enormous stuffed chicken. Keith slips in a puddle and I punch him while he's down. Jab, jab, gut, gut, face, face. He grunts and he bleeds and a couple of his teeth fall out. But he doesn't get wet despite the rain. Billy Brown giggles. It's like Ingrid Bergman playing the violin in a hot air balloon. Exactly, I say. I yank Keith to his feet and suddenly we're in a car and I don't know how I'm driving with boxing gloves on but that's how it works. We're heading downhill and the wheel's shaking like the car's about to spin out of control and Keith is screaming because the brakes don't work and there's a brick wall at the bottom of the hill. Keith starts pummeling me, telling me to stop the car and I'm laughing because here comes the wall and I can hear Billy Brown cheering me on. Ingrid Bergman, baby. Ingrid friggin' Bergman. And then suddenly I'm awake. And for a moment, I wonder if we really did hit that wall, because my head is pounding. But of course we didn't, because it was a dream, and I'm alive, and I just haven't had my coffee yet. So I eat my breakfast, and I go to work. And later, Keith's about to hound me about who knows what. But he hesitates. His shoulders droop, and he gives me an I-would-never-really-hit-a-girl look of contrition. Only he did and he knows it, and I wonder how he likes his badge of narco-boxing cool now. Oh no, I said I didn't need that report until Tuesday, but uh... Keith runs his tongue over his teeth. The fact that they're still there seems to reassure him because he puffs himself up all big and peacock-like. I'm going to need you to finish that report before you leave today. Friday, 5.15pm. I should be gone already, but I say, no problem with the biggest smile I can muster, even though I know Keith will be off to happy hour any second because I overheard his latest fling talking about it by the copier. Keith nods, but his eyes widen in a way that makes me think he's a little bit scared of me now. And he should be, because he still doesn't get dream logic and there'll be a rematch tonight. Narco-boxing. Now there is a sport. One that I think I might actually enjoy. Hmm. Well, now it's time to step into a different sort of world. 
where what matters is all in a name. Our main fantasy this week is The Title of This Story by Stephanie Campisi. Stephanie is an author of The Strange and Wondrous. Her short fiction and poetry has been published in magazines and anthologies worldwide. She tweets at Read in a Sitting, and you can read her poetry journal by following the link on the triple F. Reading the title of this story is Tim Maroney. Tim has an endless fascination with ideas and invention, the things that keep life spicy and interesting. He enjoys playing music, mostly on guitar. He's even been the opening act for a ten-band rock concert. Learning new things, like podcasting, excites him. He's been on four of the seven continents and has seen some of the wonders of our Earth. While in the Navy, he earned the rare and coveted dual Snake Pliskin Award. He escaped from New York and L.A., same as Snake, though these were two of the five submarines he served on. Not too bad for a guy from a small town in north-central Florida. And now, it's time to bring that ancient tome to the library and research its elusive title in The Title of This Story by Stephanie Campisi. In downtown, between the hypodermic fringes of Sitter Park, where the junkies walk a prickly carpet of needle-tipped glass and crumpled foil, and the painful gloom of the domed Heltrix complex that pollutes the Scangrosian skyline with its void reflective windows and vast wooden landing platforms, lay a sickle-shaped swath of religion and spirituality and similar things long illicit. A trickle of residences and warehouses and gutted ex-churches hammered together as one with irrationally added cement facades, drooping and spiking in architectural curlicues and messes of starved ivy that drank the moisture from the porous walls. At the edges of this swoop of dark-nested buildings, there was a slightly tilted terraced house, rocked on its foundations and pockmarked from gang wars and decayed at its base from the lapping of the voda, like a tooth hollowed with cavities. The residents of Ridger Palertrini claimed a tentative space here, propped up by an abandoned satellite building of the Kram, Skingrat's most famous religious landmark, on which it leaned like a tipsy cultureman. The residence was as recently as a decade ago, marked by a half-door, unusually unadorned with names and titles and postdoctoral suffixes, but now hid behind a fringe of air plants that burst from the wooden trellis on the walls. It was on a small wooden seat, with ribbons of white paint peeling from its sides like sunburnt skin, and a plump round cushion in a faded gingham that Regent sat, a photographia of a strange new device pinned to his old wooden clipboard, which rested on his lap, trembling a little as his weight shifted to accommodate his constant poppy tea drinking and the confident mathematic jottings he scattered across the page like a handful of spidery seeds. The photographia depicted a strange sort of box that opened out to reveal a series of letters printed on bone-pale keys and the thick glass of a screen that curved like an eye. A slim generator was attached to one side with warped screws. Regent worked quickly, mindful of the playful habits of the Skengrosian sun, which had no qualms about hibernating behind a mass of feathery cloud or burning with such violent intensity that the mora-infested canals of the Voda would hiss and churn. He glanced at the photographia on occasion, making notes and taking measurements, and datum by datum plotting these onto a chart that resembled rudimentary chart of the elements. 
Regent was the preeminent downtown onomastician, or rather, was as preeminent as those specializing in an outlawed vocation could be. His current commission required nothing more than a working knowledge of the basics of onomastics and basic mechanical etymological research, though the construct was simple enough that the inherent name of the object in the photographia all but burst from the page. He quickly solved the remaining equations, and filled out a form containing the item's name, as well as a receipt for services rendered, and set the clipboard down on the cracked flagstones that puffed with moss at his feet. His poppy tea, a habit that had grown to gnaw at him increasingly strongly as he leaned on it in an effort to remove his boredom, bit at the sides of his mouth, sloughing loose skin off from his receding gums. If he tilted back his chair and squinted past the stubbly gross of buildings that marched in awkward lines around the veins of the Voda, he could make out the spiny modernist sculptures dotting the vast peaked roof of downtown university. His tenure there had extended over fifteen or so years, and yet the daily walk to the green-tinged glass partitions from the ground-level rooftops down to his office, which was a drowned room three stories down, butting off of a library wing, had always kept his interest. The possibilities to be found in that library, and the potential scope of his work, it didn't bear thinking about. Regent stooped to collect his work, and headed inside to prepare another poppy seed wash. The corners of the book, despite its cloth-wrapped cover, dug into Boy's leg, leaving a small red divot that swam with sweat from his back. A tramcar sighed above him, rocking restlessly on its slowly unspooling cable, homeless ever since the floods had cut the generators and the rails had closed half a century before. A blackened arm, like a waxy bruise, waved in death from one of the side doors, which had slid open from the prizings of the beak of a carol bird. The arm had a hand, and the hand had two remaining fingers, which crooked like fly legs. The tram car was coated in soot from the crematorial belching of the abattoir towers that huddled alongside Winching Cemetery. The cemetery was, in fact, where a tram car like this belonged, but the city's burial limits seemed to have grown obese in the wake of the gang wars, disease, and a fallout from the jolts. Boy, innocent on the inside, knew these things. Knew the messy knew the importance of the book and the translation that he was required to procure. It was mid-afternoon, and even rickety laneways, constructed from precarious planks worked together with wire and nails and right angles, were busy with people heading back to work from home or from an opium den after a prolonged siesta to escape the heat. A man like a walking apteca walked by, paper cones of herbal medicines and garlands and rosaries of gems and cloves adorning him as though he were an aficionado of bizarre jewelry. He thrust a paper cup of crushed peppermint mixed with something foul-smelling at Boy, who found himself cringing and hanging back, walking slowly enough that he could get lost in the crowd, but not so slowly that he would be noticed. It was easiest to push along with the clusters of slumming Carmcrovian culturemen, noses carved to gashes from cocaine, or the washerwomen dragging hessian sacks of machine-turned clothing, or the man with the dozens of parrots threaded through their skulls onto a totem beam. The Skingrosian skyline up close slithered by like the spiky troughs and peaks of a divinograph, leaping and swaying, then plummeting as commercial centers butted onto a shantytown region where the consumptive and malformed massed together. Boy, ever conscious of the brutal weight of the book he carried, tried to walk briskly, 
to ignore the at once fascinating and loathsome spectacles ubiquitous in this mere fraction of the vast city. He tried not to show that he feared this immense place, which seemed in complete contrast to his home in one of the farthest brackish hamlets. Instead, he focused on the repercussions that the naming of the book would have for his people. Regent finished tabling the cryptic crossword for the morrow's newspaper and began filling in clues and answers with a confident hand. This would be a relatively simple crossword, with a basis that he and his former colleagues at the university had jokingly called a variation on the E minor, after its reliance on a slightly arcane and exceedingly rare value that this particular formula assigned to the letter E. It was by now late afternoon, and the sky was beginning to blush at the oncoming dusk, although this could have been from the effects of the poppy tea. The fair light stuttered against the profusion of green that swamped his tiny front courtyard. It was as though the immediate space around him was alive with tea lights, as though for some grand religious procession that the youngsters of downtown could only dream about, and which Regent could remember only hazily as a string of carnivalesque masks and costumes and lines of chanting youths who stepped slowly, as though the world were glass beneath their bare feet. Regent would have slipped further into reminiscence, if not for the cautious tread of someone making their way over the homemade crossings that zigzagged their way back and forth across the murky voda, allowing access to the upper stories of the old Skingrosian buildings that had escaped the flood, and to those levels and houses that had been hastily tacked on with no heed to planning regulations or aesthetics in the years that had followed. Presently, a youth in perhaps his late teens or early twenties stood in front of the ivy-savaged gate that Regent liked to believe sheltered his privacy. His skin was tanned and creased beyond his years, from the harsh, direct sun that beat down on rings of villages that orbited the fat mass of the city surmised Regent. The skin of Skingrosian city natives was not as easily picked as the sun there was sly, flecking off grimy glass here and sneaking through thick clags of pollution there. The city natives' skin could range from alabaster white to the deep purple-black of fine chocolate, depending on where in the city one lived. The boy had gray eyes, old eyes, which shone with the determined arrogance of youth, but at the same time the fatalism of old age. Regent was unnerved by those eyes. "'Can I help you?' he asked, setting aside his crossword and securing it from the lashing of the unpredictable wind with his metal fountain pen. The boy was silent a moment, casting his gaze down to where an identifying plaque would ordinarily hang, but upon noting its absence, returning his attention to Regent. Dr. Pelotrony? His R's were burred, his O's buried deep in his throat. He was definitely from the Brackus region. The, he hesitated before saying, far too loudly, the onomastician? His voice rolled off the murk of the voda, coming back to him as an echo that rang like a bell. I've been asked to enlist your help, he finished in an intonation-free blurt. He fumbled about and produced a broad leather-bound book that had been partially wrapped in vibrant silks. He reached a hand over the gate, offering the book to Regent. A white-tipped creeper snagged at the boy's arm, and the soft flower crowning it fell free as he snatched his hand back. Regent stood, took the book from the boy, hefting its considerable weight, and unlatched the gate, beckoning his visitor to enter the courtyard. He could smell the sweetly burning taste of the honey sauce that the nearby bakery used as the basis for all its sweetbreads and desserts. It was these things he missed, 
the innocent, homely things, the way people used to have roles to fulfill, the way they all used to fit in. Regent ran the gnawed fingertips of his empty hand over his hirsute wrist, clasping the wrist in a bony grasp while he waited for the boy to enter. The book was heavy in his hands, and he felt the damp from his fingers seeping into the vivid silk layers. The youth slid past him, smelling sharply of onion and garlic and spice, some of this from sweat, and the rest perhaps from cologne, Regent thought. Regent gestured for the boy to be seated in his gingham-covered seat, and turned to wind the small generator that hung like a spider on metal arms from a swoop of wire overhead. The generator chugged to life, pouring a hesitant and stammering spotlight onto the area below. Its light was cut in concentric circles, indicating where the round wire mesh covered the globe of the generator. Regent took a seat on an overturned wooden crate, being careful not to spear himself on its splintering edges. He shifted the book from hand to hand, waiting for the boy to address him once more. The youth leaned forward, his collarless shirt hanging open and revealing a surprisingly strong neck. It's a holy book, he said, nodding. My people have asked for it to be named so that we might discuss it in greater detail, and so the book will grow in power. The onomastician rubbed a gnarled thumb over the cover of the book. Naming provides power, he muttered, keeping his eyes on the book. He shifted the patterned silk, all gold spattered crimson drawn in rich swirls, looking for text or some sort of embossing. The cover was bare, bar a design of three intertwining lines, bulbous at each curved end. May I open it? he asked, unsure as to any particular traditions or rules regarding the book. It had been so long since he had dealt with something such as this, and he was unsure as to any customs that might need following. Of course, said the youth. He skittered his shoe back and forth over the swelling mossy caulking between the old flagstones that paved the courtyard. A mosquito, fat, with dangling legs, landed on his arm and the boy watched it with interest before lazily waving a hand at it. This isn't a bracket script, noted Regent, taking in the blockish letters that ran down the page in neat divided columns. The script was hard, but with flourishes here and there as though to add a touch of humanity. It had been hand-scribed, Regent thought, taking into account the slight irregularities between repeated letters. It's one of the dead languages. Yes, it is, said the boy confidently. Old Silthen. It's a perfect language, the most complicated language in the world. It was made for... designed for the expression of religion. He added the last in a lower tone, swatting again at the mosquito that had long since gone elsewhere. Regent gripped the book feverishly, marveling at... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The opportunity that had been presented to him. Number systems, is that correct? The geometry of words, we call it. But he stood straightening himself a little hesitantly, with that unfamiliarity that comes when one is still learning to trust the changing boundaries of one's body. If I leave it with you, he trailed off, a high questioning note in his voice. Regent righted himself. He found that his eyes were level with the boy's shoulder, which was slim but strong beneath his thin shirt. He raised his gaze, feeling somehow that the power balance had shifted and so preempted this by going to the gate and swinging it open. One month, hopefully less, but come to me in a month, and I should have your name. The Brackus boy stood for a moment, as though trying to reassure himself that the sacred book would indeed be safe, but finally turned to leave, a fragile smile creasing his face. A month. Regent listened as the boy crept back and forth across the beams that separated him from the smear of blight that was the Voda River. For all his attempts at silence, the beams shrieked occasionally, a noise that was all the more evident now that the day had faded and the acute evening stillness had set in. Boy stood on one of the many crisscrossing, interlocking beams of splintery wood and bricks rammed through with rusted poles that had been set up, makeshift by persons unknown. There was a neat little arched bridge further down, drawn from bluestone and decorated with colorful mosaics and ornate fretwork and marked with metal signposts that howled as the wind caught them. But quaintness in no way made up for practicality. And so it seemed that this monstrosity of footbridges joining the rough alleyways flanking either bank of the Voda had been devised from a mixture of necessity and laziness. Boy balanced where he was, squinting back at the domed building that leaned like an ailing veteran against Dr. Palotrony's residence. Its front windows, what appeared to have once been glorious lead lights depicting detailed scenes, were bare, revealing only thin stalks of straggling black metal here and there from which the glass had long ago fallen. He steadied himself, then leaped to the near bank, sliding in the mud-drawn weeds, avoiding a whirl of vomit plastered like papier-mâché down the knife-like reeds and death lilies. He stumbled up to the path, still off balance, feeling hazy and heady from the greasy, humid air. A feral cat, mangy and with a distended belly and hungry eyes, crawled out from a sewer drain and fled past him and on to the sagging stone balcony of a once-beautiful mansion. The tiny church had once been painted a vibrant pale blue, the color of wren's eggs, but now was lined with layers of algae and the gritty handprints of smog. Bird lime caked the protruding windowsills like foul snow, and air plants clung grimly between the widening gaps between the bluestone. The front doors, double and pointed at their tops, were set to one side. Cracked metal fretwork splintered across them. Boy went around to the north side of the church, a side farthest away from Dr. Pelotrony's. There was a toothless grill here, obscured only partially by broken glass and rocky debris that seemed to lead inside. He slipped through, bending down and curling up in that manner that only the young seemed capable of, 
squeezing into small spaces like rats. Inside the church was stifling, as though it were holding on to a lungful of air indefinitely. The fading light spilled through the blind windows, catching on the mosaic ceiling and floors. The pattern on the floor alternated between colored tiles and mirrored tiles, as did the ceiling, but in such a way that the mirrors above reflected the colored tiles below and vice versa. The effect was oddly sea-like. The boy stood for a moment, mentally tracing the paths between mirrored and patterned tiles. For all this, though, it was difficult to make out what exactly the mosaic depicted, whether text or image. He realized momentarily that it was not this that was the point of it, however, and sank to the ground, crossing his legs and watching about him as the very presence of this intricate beauty overwhelmed him. He remained thus, in a wash of faded, reflected color, each instance an echo of those before it, and created and recreated over and over as the sun slowly ebbed away in entirety. It was until a ludicrous hour in the morning each day over the next week that Regent Perlotrony worked in his attic office, poring over the angular text in the book and consulting a series of dictionaries and grammars he had pulled from a rotting wooden crate. The voters' damp breath seemed to pervade everything, causing generators to short-circuit, books to weep and molder, and clothing to sweat seemingly spontaneously. The rooms on the ground level of the house were often clammy, particularly in the morning, as though spritzed with a fine layer of silty mist. Usually the attic escaped this and remained relatively dry, but a telling dark stain had begun to spread across the ceiling like a grasping hand. Similar stains marred the fleur-de-lis wallpaper that had been thickly and hurriedly applied to the walls. Regent stretched his arms over his head, listening for the dull click of his shoulders and elbows. The voda outside was tinged a faint green from the belching gas it released as it settled overnight. Every now and then a mora would break the surface, cabbage-like brain pulsing in its open cranium, and dash after a particularly large dragonfly with a skimming trail of a hapless fish swimming carelessly by. He lowered his arms and stacked his reference materials in a neat pile, doing the same with the loose-leaf paper on which he was jotting down the book's dimensions and concordance. He was not getting anywhere with it. The task was entirely beyond him. He was unfamiliar with the language, and what a language it was, as though deliberately designed to be as ambiguous and puzzling as possible, which it probably had been, he thought, tying the silk slash around its leather cover and yanking it tightly enough that the edges of the cover bore shallow marks from the effort. He switched off the generator powering his desk lamp, which was fading and flickering anyway, and went down the stairs, grasping at the slick banister with one hand and clutching the book in the other. Downtown University existed half in the new city and half in the old. It was not that it had come out of the flood unscathed as such, but rather an enormous effort had been invested into draining the floors and buildings that now found themselves below ground level, and in building glass-walled partitions between the precarious structures so that they might be more easily accessed. Regent found himself taking the familiar route down to his erstwhile office, left past anthropology down on to the esoterics division, down again, right through geomatics, and down again into the linguistics and culture rooms, the ones that seemed to have grown organically from the curved spool of the library wing. He glanced into the library, along the rows of musty writing desks that flanked a mass of shelves that trembled slightly each time a mill's crew boat roared past or a ferry rumbled by, churning the water, propping up the university walls like milk. 
As he had hoped, and half suspected, Fenton White was bent over the desk farthest from the eastern entrance, working under the old-fashioned paraffin lamps and clattering away at his typewriter like a man possessed. This particular attribute probably had something to do with the fact that he was, in fact, a man possessed, although he would never volunteer any more information than that he had been self-experimenting at the request of a certain Mills High Commissioner. Fenton looked up as Regent approached, but continued his mad touch-typing, switching the alphabet on the keys between those of three languages seamlessly. After transcribing an additional page or so, he ceased typing, and steepled his fingers together, resting his slender forearms against the fat black body of the typewriter. A challenging assignment, I take it, he said knowingly. Regent almost expected him to rub his bony hands together in glee. Fenton had the kind of memory that seemed to be perfect in all regards. He could recite verbatim entire books that he had read years past, and transcribe from memory conversations between multiple parties, but was most evidently gifted in languages, being able to master completely foreign, socio- and pragmalinguistic norms with minimal effort. Regent, a renowned onomastician, but fluent in only three languages and passably knowledgeable about several dialects, found that his jealousy was lessened if he ascribed Fenton's gift to more Mills-funded self-experimentation. Maddeningly so, concurred Regent. I've been at it all night. I've exhausted all my resources at home, and, well, I have to admit that my proficiency with this language isn't what it should be. Well, it isn't really your area of research as such, is it, though? He held out his hand to Regent, indicating that he should like to take a look at the book. Regent gladly gave it to him. It really seems quite impossible, Regent said, rolling his stiff shoulders back and forth. He had forgotten how the cold in here had made him ache. Old Silton. The word boundaries are entirely ambiguous, and appear in dozens of different formations throughout the text, making a lexical concordance near impossible. Both the case system and verbal inflection system use portmanteau forms that are half the time underspecified, meaning that any equation I write is either too generalized or too precise. It's like I've thrown a rounded-off version of pi into the first steps of a problem. Fenton nodded, taking up Regan's despairing argument and kindly pointing out the sheer hellishness of the language in question. Twelve cases, Fenton continued, four moods, dual tri- and multiple plural systems, an inflection that can vary according to the position of a letter within a word, that word within a phrase, that phrase within a sentence, that sentence within the paragraph. He trailed off exhilarated by the brilliance of the language they were discussing. It's like a language of fractals. There seems to be an immeasurable number of permutations. Each aspect of each equation that I write overrides the last. How long do you have? asked Fenton, skimming over the pages of the book and tapping out notes on his typewriter as he read. Regent seated himself backwards on the chair of the next desk along, hugging its curved wooden back. Three weeks yet, but I have nothing, no clue as to the name. The number of syllables, the letter with which the name starts, the prevalence of vowels, and which vowels, the phonotactics. Everything I try seems to be filtered through a layer of obscurity. He unfurled his arms from around the chair, realizing that he had been grasping it so tightly that long spider-webbing marks caused by the pressure had begun to sprawl down his flesh. He dabbed at his brow with the back of his hand, and I wish he could do the same for the clammy underneath of his knees. Fenton, already immersed in several pages of notes pertaining to the book, glanced up over the long, low frames of his spectacles. It's nearing dawn, Regent, 
I'd suggest that you take a break. Go down to the Noodle Road Snuggery or the markets, or even back to your own bed. I'll send notice if I come up with anything in your absence. Regent wanted to protest, but knew that doing so would be only out of fear of Fenton's making the sort of advance in the work that Regent held no hope of doing, which would be an inevitable outcome anyway. He stood, straightening out his trousers so they skimmed the tops of his narrow shoes. The nerve passage running through his brow was stabbing sharply at his forehead, causing black spots to drill against his vision. The pain had spread through to the back of his skull and his neck. Even his jaw was stiff. He did indeed need to rest. He was exhausted, in fact. But the pull of the snuggery, at Fenton's suggestion, no less, was far more appealing, both for its proximity and the soft opium haze that made its name so apt. Boy remained in the old church for most of the following month, venturing out only during the day for a roll of smoked meat or a handful of light cheese and starfruit, but avoiding the analytical stares of the bustling citizens and tourists. As he gradually grew used to the city and its abundance of muddled-together cultural and class group, he found that everyone moved with a fierce focus in a linear fashion. At one point he bumped into a newsprint vendor with the most vividly black-skinned boy had ever seen, who thrust a ragged-edged sheet at him. The vendor's fingers were swollen from arthritis, with his knuckles standing out like the thick wooden keys of hamlet flutes. The mora, bellowed the man, his tongue slavering from his mouth, covered in a thick yellow paste. Don't you want to know about the mills and the mora? He caught Boy's arm. Boy wondered whether those knotted fingers would grow into his flesh like roots. Boy shook his head. I don't read, he said simply. I come from the hamlets. At this, the man's gnarled fingers carved at Boy's pale skin, leaving a series of jagged raw crescents like demented notes on a musical stave. His left pupil swam mistily back and forth between the shell of a cataract, and his right overcorrected as he sought Boy's gaze. And how do you expect to know anything? crowed the man, flashing filed black gold teeth. Boy pulled his arm away, rubbing at the vicious score printed into it. He dashed across an arch bridge heavy with mangoes and starfruit that had fallen from two entwined trees yawning up out of the voda. An elephant boy crawled about, a basket in either hand, selecting the darkest, softest fruit from the ripe mounds of pulp. Boy ignored him, and leaning with his arms against a faded wooden balustrade, stared at the well-heeled patrons in a tri-level cafe, carefully laughing and sipping at their drinks, and thought about what he knew. His trek to the city, on foot, and then the terrifying linked, open platforms of the rail line that met the walls of the city before drowning beneath the black Voda water. This trek had been of such importance to him. Insightful, reverential, enlightening. Time alone with himself. The book. And the teachings that colored Hamlet life from one's very first days. It was this. This and the time he spent in the sad, anonymous church that was sharply marked for him. Indeed. The city to him was a furious, seething mass of seemingly unconnected people, things, places, all nameless, all unknown. But little by little, it revealed itself to him, evolving from chaos into a perfect clockwork whole. And there was not only this, but the thought that he, a bastard after all, had no name. Yet was he not perfectly capable of comprehending himself? Regent lay on his back across the metal book trolley. If he jiggled his legs, its castered wheels shivered from side to side, 
He suspected that movement enough on his behalf could send it crashing into a bookcase. He finished tallying up his results and said glumly, 346. He waited not so patiently for Fenton to enlighten him as to his own number. Fenton squinted myopically through his spectacles. He hesitated a moment before replying, drumming his spindly fingers against his typewriter. The ringing sound caused by this took a few moments to die away, but even once it had, Regent could not shake the eerie feeling that it somehow remained. 643, I'm afraid. Regent closed his eyes momentarily, biting down hard on the inside of his cheek. It had been six weeks, and though the Hamlet boy had not yet returned, the two men had done little else than work on the problem of this holy book. Regent had taken to brewing his poppy tea and cooking up his fen, his latest indulgence, here in the library between parses of the text. We'll have to compare results. Is it possible to alphabetize them? Fenton grinned. But of course. He snatched Regent's list, lined it up with his own, and clattered about on his typewriter for no more than ten minutes before pulling out a long, unbroken sheet of onion skin paper from the glossing machine. Regent was not entirely sure as to how he felt about this disturbing efficiency. The two pored over these lists for several hours, aligning values and matching up vowel harmony and consonant mutation patterns. The sheet was soon marred with a mass of inky scrawlings and scratchings out, and Regent found he was holding his breath as a glimmer of understanding danced tantalizingly before him before leaping away again. Fenton, of course, beat him to it. They're opposites in every way, our results. Mine contradict yours, he jabbed at Regent's seventh word, and scored at his own seventh last with a ragged fingernail. But worse, mine contradict my own. He slid his finger up to his own seventh word. There's no harmony here. We've produced a ridiculous cacophony of random sounds, pathetic musings. If one takes a step away, looks less closely than we have been, one can see that these results are indeed related but in such a way that they dance uselessly around some central notion that is impossible to grasp. We cannot reach consensus, not even in ourselves, because there is no consensus to be found. Regent found that he was clutching one corner of the page so tightly that greasy, fingertip-shaped pools of sweat were soaking through it. The bookshelves, heavy and musty with books, swollen from years of student borrowing and water damage, seemed to be edging even closer, and each breath he took seemed too shallow to be satisfying. I'll return the book to the boy, he said, his voice calm, but as brittle as a tenuous drawing of a bow across strings. He picked it up gingerly as though it were soft and helpless in his grasp, although he knew it was anything but. His taxonomy remained, dog-eared and smeared, on the desk at which he had been working. As Regent went to leave, Fenton caught at his shirt cuff, pinching it sharply between fiendishly malnourished fingers. He said nothing, but his eyes were feverish, haunted, his thoughts clearly, finally mirroring Regent's. Regent heard the sound of the paraffin lamps fading as he left, and he found himself wondering if there would be any library at all the next time he returned. Regent's fountain pen-scarred work desk was the kind that boasts myriad flamboyantly decorated drawers and crannies many too small to be of any use whatsoever beyond holding a single eraser or pen nib. However, it did contain several large enough to hold some of the enormous cardboard folders in which he maintained photographi of each item the inherent name of which he had determined, and that name itself, carefully embossed in a sharp-edged font in the lower left-hand corner of each photographia. 
His notes and calculations he kept in separate files again, and it was these he consulted now. He rifled through thousands of equations, deductions, and solutions, confirming that his methods had indeed been true to the rest of his work. There were over 16,000 items categorized and named, an enormous amount, even for a considerably established onomastician as himself. 16,000 items that he had painstakingly solved for and given a name, given a place in this world. Yet this book, this terrible tome, with its foul language that obfuscated and mocked, this book had no such thing. In its leather-bound simplicity, this book was the most threatening, terrifying thing across which he had yet come. As Regent wrote out a telegram to the Mills Department of Religious Affairs, he could take solace only in the fact that without a name, the book simply could not, did not, exist. I just love the description of the language as a recursive fractal, where every element is influenced by every other element, the deeper one reads. What a wonderfully elusive and layered language that would be. Speaking of layered language, please keep in mind that Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license, which means you can download the content and share it around all you like, but you can't change it and you can't sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. If you like what you hear at Far-Fetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The button is on the website. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F. Until next week, find a woman you admire. And tell us, sir. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.